0: Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. It is our great pleasure today to welcome Chris Dorsey to the show. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Chris is the vice president of sales and business development at Boomtown. Boomtown is a knowledge logistics company, and I had to ask Chris what that meant, and a a way to think about it is as a specialized customer experience platform, so the right info at the right time and the right context. We'll talk a little bit about that, and particularly just customer experience in general. We're also going to talk about account-based marketing. We'll talk about building go-to-market channels. We'll talk about what it's like to go from the world of finance to the world of sales, so lots of ground we're going to cover today. I'm also thrilled to have my co-host, Jess Kleck, on the line. Welcome, Jess.
1: Thanks, Jeremy. Great to be back as always.
0: Jess leads our financial services vertical. We should have a blast today. And uh, Chris, I will get us started, though. We love to get to know people a little bit. So uh, I've often asked people how they learn. I'm also curious about people's hobbies. I have a lot of exotic hobbies. So I'm curious, what's an interesting hobby that you have that people maybe wouldn't expect?
2: I'm a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's something I've been doing some form of fighting since I was seven years old um like wrestling forever and then started jiu-jitsu in uh 2011 and got my black belt in 2019 i absolutely love it
0: i was fighting since 1973 but i was just fighting with my brother (laughs) we're both kind of big people i'm 6'6 he's 6'4 so when we hit puberty we we came to a truce because the hospital bills were going to mount for my my poor parents
2: (laughs) (laughs) Things start to break at that point in time
0: yeah jess did you ever do karate
1: I did not, but you know what? I put my four year old in karate and he loves it. He is really into it. And I love the discipline that comes with it. It's been <laughs> fun to watch him do that. I just recently picked up tennis, though. I had always been an avid tennis watcher, but I'd never played before. And uh, I just started taking lessons. So that's not really exotic, Jeremy. But
0: I think anything right now outside the house is exotic. Like it's not table tennis in the basement, right? Then that's, that's, <laughs> that is something to do. That's right. Yeah. Well, Chris, I thought we'd actually start with, I always like to find interesting things about our guests, but one of the most interesting things was you were working in the world of quite high finance, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan. Uh, people know the, the those firms. They may not know TPG, but that's TPG is a massive, powerful private equity firm, uh, Texas Pacific Group. How did you find your way from finance into the world of SaaS.
2: yeah um so i mean i grew up my dad is like one of the original x86 architecture guys for computer chips so all my science projects and all that kind of stuff were about building computers and all those things i love technology i just was an extrovert from you know day one uh and so i knew i wanted to interact with people but i liked hard skills i liked hard math so you know finance kind of made a, a lot of sense i graduated into the great recession which is a, a weird time to kind of come of age and, and finance. And, and I asked for the hardest projects we could work on. So I got to like spin off Massive Square Garden from Cablevision, do the Motorola breakup, work on a transaction with Visa. And I just, I kind of kept finding myself back in the technology space there. And then when I went to TPG, I was actually in the growth equity group. And I just found that I love entrepreneurs. I was always inspired by them. And I, I hated that my work ended. When I thought the fun part would begin, like you know, we value the company, we talk to them, we learn all these things about their business, and then I went on to the next deal, and it's like, well, but there's all this work to be done. We have these great ideas and strategy, and how do we implement that? How do we get it done? How do we actually build value versus, um, you know, I think finance about recognizing value, but how do we actually build value? And I really wanted to go do that because those are the people I really respected—was the entrepreneurs and the people on the ground. So. Always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial bent to me. I used to repackage baseball cards and like use like low-level statistics when I was like nine to make sure I made more money than I gave away when selling my baseball cards. But people would get like little four-dollar cards every now and again for twenty-five cents. And so I knew I wanted to do something small, but you kind of have to take a layover coming out of finance. That like you know, there's not a whole lot of people, and I didn't necessarily have a skill set that said hire me into a six-person company which is how big Boomtown was when I joined. Um, and so Palantir actually made a really nice place for me. You know, I've always been very fortunate to be surrounded by incredibly intelligent people. I like to say at Palantir, I was the dumbest person in every room I walked into. There's
0: a lot of PhDs, I believe, at Palantir, if I'm not mistaken, right? And
2: people who never went to college, but who are beyond brilliant. The team that I was on at Palantir is called R2D2. And it's kind of, I think one of the greatest training grounds for operations in in the world. I think it's nobody knows about it. Nobody's ever heard of it. And I think one of the things I took away from there is kind of there's an ongoing debate. Like the way you view yourself as a company, as a team is incredibly important, right? We're building COOs at R2. People are operationally excellent, right? And if that's your identity, you do certain things. If you're trying to solve the world's most important problems versus the world's hardest problems most of the world's most valuable problems, what you choose in there as a qualifier is exceptionally important. If you're solving the most important problems, you might accept less revenue because it's more important to be mission-driven and solve the most important problem. If you're trying to solve the hardest problem, it might not be the most valuable problem. So when you work in an enterprise, you actually have to look at different things. If I'm looking at a commercial business, I'm trying to solve the most valuable problem. And that might not actually need machine learning and really complex AI. It just might need, you know, some different math, a different way of viewing the world using calculus instead of guessing, right, bringing data and truth. And that's not actually that hard when you use a system like Palantir, but it's the most valuable thing. It was a really nice transition opportunity for me from finance and using those skills to help find value drivers to technology and and kind of interacting to help kind of like build products and all that type of stuff. Uh, And then but I always knew I really wanted to do something really small. Uh, And so I met Chip, our our founder in Boomtown. Uh, I think I joined within a week uh, because we just kind of viewed the world the same way. So
0: you've 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 mentioned um, math and coding a bunch of times already. So uh, it's funny enough, I asked this question on LinkedIn probably, I don't know, a month or two ago, where I said, should B2B AEs learn to code? Because we have plenty of AEs who listen to the podcast. And uh, well, actually, I'll quiz you. So what percentage of salespeople do you think agreed that B2B AEs should learn to code? 15%? Yeah, you're pretty close. It was 23. So that's you're within, you know statistical error of, <laughs> of the right answer. So 77% thought, thought, no. What, what's your take on that should, right? Cause it sounds like it's one of your secret superpowers. Uh, do you think, do you think others should learn to either code or get smarter and, you know, in things that you don't necessarily automatically associate with salespeople like higher math and so on? So I
2: don't necessarily think it's coding. I think data literacy is incredibly important. Um, I think basic statistics is is exceptionally important, right? When we think about like, even if you're a sales manager and you want to run to figure out a new SDR cadence, outbound SDR cadence, figure out what's working or not, right? Like statistically speaking, we need to get to a certain volume. Well, we need our audience to be the same. If we're going to test different cohorts, the underlying makeup of each one of those cohorts needs to be fundamentally the same. So I need to be going after the same audience, which is both the ICP as well as the persona. I don't want to email a bunch of CMOs one thing, a bunch of CTOs or COOs the other thing. And then say I have a statistically relevant sample. I, I don't, those two groups are not comparable, right? And so then I look at my subject line and then I look at my message, right? And so understanding how to do data analysis in such a way that you can work through a funnel and go, okay, I need to get the same audience and then I'm gonna go with the same subject line. And I'm not gonna mess, muck around with subject line and do run this for a while. and get a statistically accurate sample size. And then I'm gonna go to the next thing. I'm gonna change my subject line until I get my open rate where I want it to be and then I'm going to go to my messaging. And then I'm going to work through how many touches I have in my cadence. I think I see a lot of people who change too many things at once and then they go, well, this is working. Well, what's working? You don't know, right? You think it's because you changed it, but you started messaging an entirely different audience. That's actually not that you change your message. That's throwing spaghetti at the wall. And, And I think that comes to play all over the place. And so, you know, again, Palantir, Peter Thiel would disagree, like the world's not uh, probabilistic, you want it to be deterministic, you want it to be calculus. Um, But just understanding what that means, (laughs) are you looking at data and just hoping like the probabilities are work out of your favor, or are you actually trying to drive a specific outcome? And I think combining those two, two ways of thinking like, I know my objective from a deterministic perspective is, I need to create 20 opportunities per month per SDR. How I get there will be using statistics. And measuring data and making sure that I'm moving towards that goal.
1: You are speaking Jeremy's language, <laughs> who recently created a test subject line app, which essentially the title of the or the subject line you can test and see what the probability of the open rate will be. So I don't know if you've used that, Chris, but I'll have Jeremy send it over to you. So I want to shift gears a little bit. I mean, still so, still leveraging um, you know, we've talked about you wanting to be an operator. We've talked about your love of you know, mathematics and and data. As you are building out your vertical strategy and your the different sales channels, how how have you used those couple things, or superpowers, to really decide how you build out your go to market?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So you look at data to figure out kind of what's working, right? But there's always a story to it. I think that's uh, forget who said it. Like uh, I need people who understand data and when to ignore it. It's kind of one of the like you have to do things that don't scale before you can do things that scale, right? And so you're kind of making guesses. And so like one of the things we implemented was a uh, like a customer experience journey mapping exercise with some of our biggest banking partners to literally go through and look at their entire world through the lens of their customers' eyes. And if you think about discovery, what we're trying to do and uncover problems and uncover critical areas of of challenges and where they really need help and what actually moves the needle from a business perspective, empathy. Um, You know, we actually would sit down on a whiteboard and go through like an hours long exercise and take all these different stakeholders and go, is this actually the customer experience you want to deliver? And what are the common breaking points here? So we talk about being a knowledge logistics platform. You know, this is where we uncover those things. Like the information exists in different pods, it's not being accessed by the people at the right time. It's kind of hidden. They can't quite get to it. It's all invisible to the customer. Um, and that's a really negative customer experience. Okay, well, how do we solve that? And so and so once you have that empathetic conversation, you think you've got a there there, we're then testing it, seeing if it replicates across more and more customers, if it resonates. And that's kind of like the combination of do something that doesn't scale, use your empathy.
1: Very interesting because that's what you do, right? It's a customer experience platform that, that you're really selling there. Talk to me a little bit more um, around the ABM piece of thing. So, you know, you've, you've used data to quantify the verticals in your strategy. And so double-click now onto that next level, which is how you got to the account-based marketing.
2: Yeah, um, we did basically, a you know, middle of this year, coronavirus, obviously, it's been a, a wild time for everybody. Our team's done an exceptional job. We actually beat um, the uh, the original budget, not the not the coronavirus budget. Um, yeah. So I'm just incredibly proud of our, our team and what they were able to accomplish, which is a lot of hard work. And then you kind of pull up in the middle of the year and go, okay, what just happened? What what signal has changed? Like, here's where we thought we were. Here's where the world is now. And so when we looked at ABM, kind of looking at our, our outbound data and going, okay, we're getting a lot of opportunities created, but we're not necessarily seeing a lot of those move through the funnel quickly or, or converting at the rate you want them to. So what's different about the ones that have converted and how do we isolate those? And you go, okay, well, we're getting referrals. We're getting um, analyst coverage. We're getting, um, they're, they're hearing about us before we show up through an outbound message, right? And that's kind of this concept that we had this cold outbound that was not converting at the levels we wanted it to through the pipeline versus a, a warmer get to know you, build some thought leadership, get a referral from whether it's an investor or another customer of ours, helping us work into an account. And then we start to see people who would leave accounts and bring us with them wherever they went. Uh, okay, like there's there's a little bit more here. And we know that once we get established, we do a good job, people bring us with them. That looks like case studies. That looks like a lot more kind of reviewing those those existing customers and going, what's, what's common about them? And they all kind of run in the same circles. Uh, and so that gave us a, a view of, and I wouldn't say we're doing pure ABM. It's not like we've got like 100 accounts. And if we don't get those 100, then we failed ABM. It's kind of more ICP and persona-based marketing in a much tighter circle with a multi-pronged approach to it, right? So it's a kind of a more holistic outreach approach, whether it's targeting people, the same people with persona-based ads on social, getting analyst outreach, getting analyst coverage, doing more PR and press you know, doing a lot more in terms of publishing content, both at an individual level and at a company level to build, you know, used to do that stuff to build SEO. Now we're doing it to build brand. Like if we think about the world moving forward, whether it's GPT-3 being able to spin up a blog article on the fly, right? It's about brand when content can be generated at that kind of pace. It's like, what does your brand stand for? We're not three people in a garage building something. We're this is an enterprise platform. As so you're talking about a lot more different, you know, it's a different user base as well. You're, you're talking about securities and user permissions and access controls. And so, really, again, through that empathetic learning process and looking at all the deals and going, what was most important to these banks? What was most important to these financial institutions? Well, so data security, you know, access permissions. Okay, those are the things we're going to talk about in addition to the fact that, um, we're fundamentally changing your customer experience from, um, you know, this reactive siloed approach to, you know, knowledge logistics. We're all knowledge workers. So moving the right information to the right person. It's this customer. Customer A needs something different than customer B. It all lives in a monolithic knowledge base. And so it's either incumbent upon the customer to go find it or the support user or the salesperson to go find it. Well, instead of doing user-driven discovery, we can actually flip it on its head and we can deliver it directly to you using AI that delivers a better customer experience. We can use roles and permissions to be sure the right information gets to the right person at the right time. We can do, you know, use more security so you're not having to give people access to entire systems. You're just giving people access to specific information that they need and not kind of the whole knowledge base or the whole database. That's irrelevant for them, right? And you find these in, in these big companies where like, sorry, I'm kind of going completely on a tangent. Here. No,
0: It's fascinating. We're we're being quiet because it's fascinating. Yeah.
2: You find that there'll be like a a handful of people who have access to a secure system or, or, you know, proprietary system. They're only people who can access it. And so salespeople have to go ask them for a data pool or a support person has to go escalate it to tier two or tier three just to get a specific piece
0: of information. And from a customer's perspective, like that makes sense from the organizational perspective.
2: We can't give everybody access to every piece of information. We can't have people have you know, read write permission on a database that is proprietary that that is um, needs to be secure, and so it makes sense internally, but from the user's perspective, I just called in with a uh, what I thought was a quick question. I just want an answer. Where is this package? What? How? You know, where am I in the onboarding process? What's the next step? Well, the next step sits with a different organization, so I don't have that information. I got to go like ask them for it, but I don't have access to their systems. So we go knowledge logistics says you should be able to get that information without having access to the underlying system. So using access controls and those types of things, we can say, well, that information can be delivered securely, quickly, safely. And it's a better customer experience, but it has all those enterprise capabilities you need. And so we think about ABM, You know, it's not just feature functionality. It's like, what are these core things that are fundamentally important to an enterprise customer, particularly a financial customer?
0: Yeah, one of the subtexts here, right, is we're talking not about sort of what is called spearfishing, I guess. We're talking about whale hunting, right? Yeah. Uh you're you're prospecting this this monolithic 20, 30, 40, 100 year old financial services institution. Right. Um how does the approach differ, right? Like it's it's not just an SDR calling and executing cadences. What are some of the elements of your of your strategy to to get into those companies? So it's much more senior, (laughs) kind of what you're hitting on,
2: right? There's C-level interaction there for us as well. And I think that's really important when you're, and again, um, lots of people will talk about this. When you're dealing with that size customers, CEOs need to be involved. And I've seen that from Palantir all the way down. And then you're taking a lot much longer time. And we've been talking to some of our our people who are now customers for five, six years. And that's kind of the difference between business development and sales, right? Like I'm trying to build a pipeline that's going to convert over multiple years. And so we've been doing that for for an extended period of time. While we were doing tuna fishing or you know, smaller fishing, we're building that up, and we've kind of got a um, the world, particularly in finance and payments ex- and banking, even exists in an ecosystem. And so we looked at the biggest people in, in the ecosystem and said, who are they connected to that are smaller than them? Who will be likely to move faster? And we signed them up originally. We targeted those accounts originally, so we kind of worked our way up the food chain so by the time we got to the whales we'd already been working with a bunch of the minnows and tunas and we worked our way up over a long and it was a specific a specific strategy we've had since day one um to go after the startups the in our world like independent sales organizations who move faster don't have the same kind of bureaucracy that requires them to go through a bunch of approvals and
0: you know, it might still have had the regulatory and security considerations, so whatever, the lemonades of the world as opposed to the big and lemonade probably was acquired for all I know I don't I pay more attention. but <laughs> they haven't been, but I
2: don't think they have been, but yeah, like that that you know it's it's not we don't work in the insurance space, but that that's the concept, yes, is like work with other people in their ecosystem. And so we think about hub and spoke and like a um, an enterprise social graph, if you will, of who they all interact with who are their channel partners, um, who are their integration partners. And we started rolling up through that ecosystem. And all of a sudden, we're working with 20, 30% of your channels. We're working together, whether we know if you're not. And that's been a very long, specific strategy of ours.
1: That is uh, really, really cool and interesting. Uh, just one more question about that. So um, who, who did you task with building that social graph? Like, was that a team effort? Was it a data Project because I know you're passionate about data projects, or was it a technology that you used to help you do that?
2: No, we built it by hand. We have the fortune of having great investors and, and people who started the company at the C level who have been in the space for a really long time. And so, as I kind of got up to speed when I first joined, I knew a lot about payments from my time at Palantir and my time in, in finance. And then you're going, okay, well, who are all these, these different players? And they're all up here and they're all up here. Oh my gosh, there's one three or four people at the top who are the infrastructure for this entire industry. Yep. Okay. But then who do they go to market through? And so kind of uh, the companies get bigger as you go up and the market power gets bigger and consolidation gets bigger. And then the further down you go kind of smaller, more nimble, lots of startups, lots of different organizations. So I have, um, whenever I onboard somebody to our team, I've got like an hour long because it's one of the hard things to do joining an industry like this is, is trying to understand the lay of the land. I can't really... I believe context is incredibly important for anybody to do a good job, right? And so, I, keep, you know, this, sure, if you have sales, raw sales talent, and we've been very fortunate that the, that the junior team members said that all had incredible raw talent. But now I've got to teach you about how payments works, how the banking system works, how these things. And so I've got a kind of standard market map I draw out. And then we kind of, every now and again, you know, quarterly, yearly, every twice a year, we'll go through and like, Just literally black out the bubbles where we're okay. We got a good relationship here. Land and expand says we're only ten percent of the way through this account, but you know it's another node off the graph. And then you think about like um, in any kind of model like this, you don't just need network effects; you need a critical mass, right? And so that's been our you know if we if we've had challenges over the years, it's like getting to critical mass, and we're starting to see that happen now. But you know it's the network effects of having this person on the graph means that it's more valuable for the next person which makes it more valuable for the next person. And so our platform allows like a lot of people share customers and we enable that to happen securely without data being shown to the wrong person. So we actually have like a unified identity concept. Um, And so everybody can benefit the more people are on the graph and the more overlap there is, uh, which is, you know, kind of unique to our platform entirely this ecosystem collaboration model, as we call it. Um, And so, we don't just need those network effects, though. We we need a critical mass. And that's what we've been building over the years. And then you start to see that pay off. And it's kind of that, that story of an overnight success that took
1: 10 years <laughs> to build. I spent um, you know, nearly six years at LinkedIn, and not unlike the story of Jeff Wiener's economic graph, which is originally how LinkedIn was positioned, right? Which is a lot of people have knowledge, but a lot of people don't know about particular opportunities or talent, and so we create that, network for people to benefit broadly. And it was all about critical mass. Obviously it's the most valuable database in the world that is, you know, accessed by few. But yeah, that's really interesting. Did you draw any similarities to that when you were thinking about building your social graph?
2: Yeah. That's why we built our platform the way we did with this equal ecosystem collaboration built into it. All these graphs kind of go down to small and medium sized businesses, whether it's a bank or a payments company, all kind of into the same customer. And then they have overlap. And so it's a really complex data model to say, like, we're going to plug into all these different people's CRMs and we're going to pull data from them and we're going to help give a better view of this customer, but nobody's going to get data that doesn't belong to them. And we're going to update everybody's CRM, keep everybody up to date. It's, really, it's a really, it's a massively challenging problem. And one of the things we centered around is like in our industry, there's kind of very common core pieces of technology. So we have what's called a product index that reconciles like, You might have like a Verifone credit card terminal at every target, right? Those have the same problems, whether they're a target or your local retailer, right? Those are going to have the same technical challenges when you have a support call. Um, And so we've resolved all of those identities into master product objects. And so we think about knowledge delivery. And again, our knowledge graph speeds up faster than anybody else's. Because every one of our partners who's on our platform, who solves a question about that technology, feeds the knowledge model about that product. And so the next customer gets the benefit of it. And so everybody's knowledge builds on each other's. We all of a sudden we take problems that used to take 45 minutes to solve and we're down to four minutes.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It was brilliant talking to you and learning from you. And uh, we definitely had to sharpen our minds during that conversation (laughs) in a really good way.
1: Thanks so much, Chris.
0: Thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate talking to you guys. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.